So I was born in the old Yugoslavia, and then um, there was a war in Bosnia between 91 and 95. So we basically arrived in New Zealand at the very last year of the war. I was uh, fairly young. I think I was about 11 when the war started. I didn't like what I was seeing on the news every day, but I think my parents shielded me probably from the worst of it, and we weren't really involved in any direct fighting. It was just about the borders being closed, um, not having petrol, food, medicine available. So it took a lot of creativity to survive at the time. That's Vladimir Stradkovich. You might remember him from our My House Earns More Than Me episode earlier this year. That was a great episode. It was. It got five-star Google review from um, V Ventura. Oh, must be a great one. If you didn't catch that, that's a callback to our last episode. When we started this podcast... Vlad was the first guest that came into our shiny new studio. And to be honest, I don't think we could have asked for a better guest. He was an awesome guest. Yeah. I mean, that voice is just iconic. We only wanted him to come in and talk about his experience of the housing crisis. But two hours later, we'd got his whole life story. Yeah, and it wasn't in that one of those kind of shoot me dead at the Christmas party grandpa styles. Um, <laughs> my my kind of stories. Nod and, and smile kind of way. He's a, he's a real dude, Vlad, and he really knows how to tell a story, you know, from borrowing babies to get milk during the war in the Balkans through to moving to NZ, his marriage, his divorce, and then, you know, what we talked to him about, chasing runaway property prices. Yeah, and those stories, they're kind of the inspiration for this episode, right? Yep. So growing up in New Zealand, there's lots of things that we just understand. There's social etiquette, culture, jobs, transport, food, the list goes on and on. And of course, the reason some of us understand them so well is because we've grown up here. It's what we know. It's our factory setting. But that clearly isn't the case for all New Zealanders. Moving to New Zealand, you start from scratch. You know, you leave everything that you know and everything you've worked hard for and you start from scratch. I wasn't a permanent resident, so that automatically disqualified me from a lot of jobs. Another thing I kept getting back, which was really eye-opening to me, was, oh, well, you know, you don't have any Kiwi experience. When I asked around the people, nobody could have told me which bus stop do I take the bus from. That is pretty weird because in Malaysia context, in my country, majority of the people will know, okay, this is the bus stop, this is where you go. First part of my life, we lived in the same place. And then suddenly we came to New Zealand and there was so much change happening in just very few years that I've been here. <laughs> I still get caught out and so do my folks when people say, can you bring a plate or would you like to come over for tea? I have to ask, are you meaning dinner or like a cup of tea? Oh, yeah. I remember my partner telling me that, like, hey, if you like limes, like you should stockpile them because they won't be available half the year. And I was like, what? I've never had to think about stockpiling limes before. (laughs) People just get quiet after 8 p.m. You don't see anybody. But in Malaysia, in my country, everybody's still alive, active at night, still eating, going out. And you just see a a whole lot of people around you. You feel that the nights are still alive until 12, 1 a.m. When I went to my first intermediate school, we stood up. And no one tells you, you know, because obviously this is something that everyone's been brought up with and they know what's going on. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, they're coming in close. What are they going to do? Are they going <laughs> And it's like, oh, it's like a, um, it's called a hongi. You know, your cell phone bill is every 28 days. You know, you're paying for 13 months instead of 12 months in a year, which was uh, kind of hard to wrap my head around. And I think the lifestyle here is very individualistic and we're not very much connected, except from our work-related reason. 
Yeah, I miss that friendliness of sense of belonging to the community. This week on Consume This with me, Sophie. And me, John. We're celebrating our newest New Zealanders. The people who weren't born here, but have made Aotearoa their home. We're delving into their small frustrations and the barriers they've had to overcome. The differences between our society and the ones they've come from. As well as Vlad, we'll be hearing from Rohingya refugee Hafsa Tamisudin, South African migrant Catherine Laverock, and our newest migrant, Hassan Tahir. He moved here from Canada to be with his wife, Mapara. Right, but before we get into it, I think it's important to say what this episode is and what it isn't. It isn't a comprehensive look at the experiences of all migrants or communities in New Zealand. The Pacifica community isn't represented, for example. Neither is the Chinese or the Indian community. Honestly, this is a massive area and in half an hour it's just not possible to cover everything or everyone. Yeah, you're right. But what this episode is, is a compilation of four people's experiences adapting to a New Zealandy way of life. Their own stories, in their own words. My father was a social worker, he worked in a bank, and my mother was a, well, she still is a veterinarian. And obviously those are usually pretty good professions that should allow a family to survive. Yet when the war happened, we had a massive inflation. So my parents had to improvise, maybe going and selling at the flea market to make ends meet. Uh, My father had um, quite a video collection of movies and TV series. So he would copy them over on VHS tapes and then take them to the market to sell. And that was always popular. So that was kind of a way to get a little bit of extra money to survive. We tried to work on the land and sell the produce, but that was not really cost-effective because we couldn't even get the fuel that we needed to actually work the land. So, you know, hats off to my parents. They did everything they could to give me a good education and to raise me the way they did. And I'm grateful for that. And they are the ones who brought me here to New Zealand. So they gave me an actual future, I feel. Even though Vlad's parents both had good jobs and a pirate video empire, Life in the wake of a civil war isn't easy. You can't just jump in your car and head down to Countdown to get the necessities. We are lucky that I've had grandparents in the village, so we were able to get meat and produce occasionally compared to some other people who were in the cities and they were stuck. Um, To give you an example, um, if you wanted to buy bread or milk, you would have to queue up outside of the store maybe at 4 a.m. in the morning. store would get the delivery around 6 And then if you were lucky, you might be able to walk away with a loaf of bread and a litre of milk. But that wasn't always guaranteed. Remember at the start of the show I mentioned borrowing babies? Yeah, there was that. My parents actually did send me a few times to wait, so they would wake me up at 4am, it would be my turn. Normally they would always take their turn, but occasionally, that was maybe once every few months, I'd be the one queuing up. And I just remember there's a whole group of people, we all waiting and commenting on whether or not there will be enough milk for everyone. Uh, Once it arrived, people would go into the store and the lucky ones would walk out with a litre of milk. Once it's all gone, it's gone. Better luck next time. Funnily enough, if you had a baby, you may be able to purchase two litres of milk instead of one. So there's occasions where people would borrow neighbourhood babies and then get two litres of milk give a little bit of money to the parent, and then freeze a litre in the freezer for next time. We didn't borrow the babies, but to me, that was such a bizarre thing to ask your neighbour, oh, could I borrow your baby so I could buy some milk? So I think the war was probably the tipping point for my parents to decide that maybe there is no future in that country and that we should seek 
our life somewhere else. And I guess we found the furthest possible place we could on the opposite side of the world. So Vlad's family decide to move across the world to Aotearoa. But it's not as simple as packing up and leaving. They had to apply and wait to be accepted for resettlement. I was lucky enough to be turning 14 the day that it rang us to tell us that we got permanent residence in New Zealand. And to me, that's still such a vivid memory of I could hear my mum talking to someone in English and then suddenly she's breaking out in tears with happiness, saying we're going to be Kiwis. It was such an immense relief. That's just something that stays burned in my memory. I can still see the old apartment. As a fresh-faced 14-year-old, Vlad had no idea what to expect from his new life in New Zealand. So I didn't really know too much about New Zealand coming here. My geography book had about one paragraph on New Zealand. So arriving, everything was new. We landed in Wellington Airport. Um, It was probably January. So you would expect nice weather, but this was a particularly gloomy day with kind of misty, rainy weather. So my first opinion of Wellington probably wasn't the best because we hopped in a car and drove straight to Newtown. So when we were driving past, I could not see a single building that was not made out of wood and more than two stories tall. And I knew that this was the capital of the country, so I expected maybe a bit more high-rises. So I was worried, what kind of place is this where we've just come? And we stayed in a really cheap motel, which obviously didn't help with the impression at the time. But the following morning, going down the stairs and walking into the supermarket and finally seeing that there's stuff on the shelves that there's all these colourful new things I've never seen before made me realise that maybe I had come to a better place. Then, of course, I saw Wellington CBD and I realised, yep, this is a modern developed country just like I was expecting. So how did these initial experiences of New Zealand compare to the country he grew up in? Uh, Well, during the war, um, old Serbian supermarkets started getting emptier and emptier. So you would walk in and suddenly there was nothing on the shelves. And like, By the end of the war, they were practically empty. There was nothing else you could be shopping unless it was produced locally. So suddenly walking into this cornucopia of uh, different colours and labels I have never seen before, I would actually go down to the supermarket just to slowly walk through the aisles and try and figure out what it is that I'm looking at, picking up cans and looking at the pictures, trying to understand what is what. One of the funny moments that we had is one of my friends wanted to buy some popcorn, but he did not know what the value of the New Zealand money is. He only had 10 cent coin. So he asked someone, could I please get 10 cents worth of popcorn? And he was given about six seeds in a bag. And still remember how happy he was to take him home and pop those six popcorn. But I'm still a bit bitter about the fact that he didn't even share a single one with me. But Vlad didn't need any of that popcorn he discovered his own distinctly New Zealand snack. The first few months in New Zealand, I sort of became addicted to these lollies that I would be finding at the Woolworths near where I lived. And um, I think they were Mr. Pascal W's. I don't think they're produced anymore. But I just couldn't get enough of them. Eat them every day. And then one day I walked in and there was none on the shelf. And there was this kind of old nagging fear that maybe even here, shelves would one day become empty. And I remember picking up the label from the shelf which said, please order more. And I took it to the counter, begging the lady there, can you please order some more of these? Because I was so scared that they were gone forever. So I guess there are some background fears still in my mind that even here one day things could just disappear. Despite my extensive lolly knowledge, I'm not familiar with Mr. Pascal's W's and I am I feel a bit sad about that now. I, I you feel, feel like you might have missed out a wee bit? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think Vlad needs to explain explain himself to me so I can go and 
find these Mr. Pascal's W's. <laughs> so for Vladimir, it sounds like the New Zealand shopping and consumption experience must have felt like a pretty monumental wholesale change. So many things were unfamiliar to him. Being able to walk in the door and just pick something up, from what he said, was a pretty alien experience. And it's not just Vlad. Supermarket shock is more common than you'd think. That, that was my first impression too. Um, one of the things that education department from Mangu Refugee Centre do is they bring the refugees to the nearby countdown and let us see about the price of the items. The one thing I realised is vegetables in New Zealand are more expensive than meat, which is very unusual than in my country. In my country, the rich people eat meat. The poor eat vegetables. Here is the opposite of it. And if you're rich, you can afford vegetables, uh, healthy ones, green ones. <laughs> so, and the poor people eat meat. Like, okay, this is very interesting. And then things seem to be quite expensive if you want to be very healthy and, you know, love to eat green, organic vegetables. This is Hafsa Tammy Sudan. She arrived in Auckland in 2019 as part of a UN refugee resettlement program. As part of that resettlement process, she spent six weeks in the Mangari Refugee Centre. We'll hear more of her story soon, but it's clear from the intro that she was worried about the price of vegetables being higher than the price of meat. Hafsa, I'm pleased to be able to tell you that the supermarket duopoly has fixed that problem for you, and now everything's really expensive, not just fruit and vegetables. Yeah, expensive for everybody. Vlad and Hafsa both come from countries which were undergoing significant and traumatic turmoil, be that civil war or ethnic persecution or human rights violations. But even if you've come from a culture or a background that we might consider culturally similar, there are still lots of small differences that can leave you feeling a world away from home in New Zealand. (laughs) I think I was a bit naive when I first got here because I had kind of just figured like, oh yeah, you know, well, they're both uh, Commonwealth countries. We both kind of share similar values probably won't be too much of a jump for me to move to New Zealand. But then once I got here, once you start living in a place, you start noticing kind of the little things that are different, things that you don't really pick up when you're just a visitor. That's Hassan Tahir. He's the newest New Zealander we're featuring in this episode of Consume This. He arrived in Auckland Airport in March 2020, right as the scale of the COVID pandemic really started to kick in. Yeah, so I think I have a bit of a unique perspective because the day I got here was the day the borders closed for the first time. And we're located in central Auckland. So I had this really unique look into the city. Everything was quiet. Unlike the other migrants we've talked to in this episode, Hassan made his own choice to move to Aotearoa. He moved for love. Yeah, remember the early 2000s, John, when MSN Messenger was huge, you know, ASL, John. I think it was actually age oh, sex God. location. What are you talking about? It was the MSN and you typed in oh, ASL, never, never age sex location, and you'd be like 14 female Auckland. And then like you'd have a chat with a stranger online. Basically, it was a very risky time and NetSafe would probably have had a field day with all the conversations I had with strangers. But anyway, oh, somehow in the heady, newly interconnected world of the early 2000s, Hassan met his now wife, Mapara who I also went to university with. They used to talk on the MSN platform every day. The only snag was she was in Auckland, over 11,000 kilometres away from his Vancouver home. We talked for most of our lives and then we kind of stopped talking for a little bit and then reconnected in 2018. 
and then the rest is kind of history for us. What Rapara means by history is that they got married in Pakistan before Hassan eventually came to join her in Auckland. Despite coming from a similar affluent Western country, Hassan also got supermarket shock. Some things kind of seem familiar. They have a similar packaging, but they have a different name or they're slightly different. <laughs> One time I was making chili, which is basically kind of like a beef stew. And the recipe called for a chili mix. I went to the supermarket, got the chili powder, made the chili according to the recipe. I think it was like two tablespoons or something. It was it was a lot. <laughs> when me and Wapara went to eat it, it was so incredibly spicy that it was inedible. Like we had to just chuck it because there was no way any human could eat it. I just kind of went over my mind of like, what did I do wrong? And it wasn't until later that I did like a, I Googled another chili recipe from an Australian blogger who pointed out that in Australia, New Zealand, chili powder is just ground up red chilies. That's not, whereas in North America, chili powder is kind of like a pre mixed spice blend of different spices uh, in, you know, moderate levels. And so that was just like a little thing of like two things being called the same, but being two very different things. <laughs> and of course, along with that comes the obligatory price shock. Da, da, da. Oh man. I kind of come across these moments kind of like every day, almost it seems doing like the conversion calculations from what the U S price of that good is, or the Canadian price of that good is versus the New Zealand price, and it's like a lot of times double to two and a half to three times the price here. Avocados, for example, I guess things like uh, going out to eat at a restaurant or something, drinks cost quite a bit. Like, I don't think I've ever paid less than double digits uh, for a drink here. But um, we've seen a lot of time talking about shopping and supermarkets, which I guess makes sense. Food is a key part of our identities. And New Zealand prices are shocking, even to non-recent arrivals. <laughs> but there's more to the migrant experience than different foods. Entering the job market was a whole nother ordeal. In North America, it's kind of like a very step-by-step process. Here, it's a bit different. It's kind of old school in the sense that it's easier to get a job if you know somebody who's like, oh, they'll recommend you being someone new to the country who hasn't had time to really even develop any of those connections. That was really hard because I would get instant rejections. And it's like, well, I have tons of experience from really reputable companies that are worldwide companies, you know, and I've never had trouble getting a job anywhere else before. So this was the first time I kind of had some hurdles. And uh, I honestly got to a point where I was like, okay, well, you know, we'll see how it goes and took a step back and took a few like temporary jobs that weren't really in my field. If you were looking at it pragmatically would think like, Oh, that's a step back. But it was really just my motivation was, well, at least I'll have some form of references built up here. Hassan was lucky. Even though navigating the New Zealand system was a struggle, he had Mapara to support him through the process. And for everything that is different, there are more things that are the same. That's right. I mean, for example, it's easy to convert a Canadian driver's license to a New Zealand one. Um, and as we'll find out soon, this isn't true for refugees who, like Hafsa, arrive through the UN resettlement program. I am from Rohingya ethnic background. The operation has been ongoing for over six decades. 
And then after 1982, the citizenship law excluded us from being the citizen, which made me and many people who were born after 1982 stateless people inside our own country where our ancestors have lived for many decades, like centuries, that deprive many rights from us. That includes education, uh, employment, and you're just basically, you don't belong to that country legally, according to them. So that's a lot of oppression, discrimination, exclusion, and you just don't have a life. A very close example that I can give, if a Rohingya person travel from the town where he or she was born to another town and stay one night within the state, within the country, we can get arrested and detained for about seven years, simply for traveling, even if it's for your medical reason. And a lot of people died or they don't have a life, or some people who can't take it anymore, they just leave because People crave for having a human life and you want to seek for your potential in life. And at some point, some people are compelled to live for some reasons. If they don't live, their life will be at risk. And so leave is exactly what she did. And then I was in Thailand for one year and a half, uh, trying to seek asylum in that country, but I couldn't because I didn't know which organization shall I have to reach out to. And Unixia was quite unreachable, very far away from where I was living. Um, ideally hiding as an undocumented migrant and then I made it to Malaysia and then I spent about eight nine years each in Malaysia as a refugee. Only one percent of refugees actually get to resettle so for every Hafsa there are 99 other people out there still in refugee camps hoping for a chance to put down some roots somewhere safe. After being in Malaysia for around six years Hafsa was selected for a potential resettlement to New Zealand. When you're waiting for resettlement, you don't actually get to decide which country you end up in. And the process is not quick. But eventually, in 2019, three years after her first interview with Immigration New Zealand, she finally arrived in Auckland. The International Airport of Malaysia is quite big and quite huge. And then the first impression you came to Auckland Airport is quite simple and, you know, it's simple and very small. And like, oh, okay, this seems very peaceful and simple and small town. And then the first place that I get to be is in the refugee camps. Um, and we all have to stay there for six weeks. But then for me, it's because of what I have gone through in my in my own country of origin. I always feel like... I couldn't reach to my potential as a younger person or to the potential that somebody could have reached at my age. And I didn't want to waste any time at all in the refugee camp. All I wanted to do is get out to the wall and study and walk and then, you know, reach out to my dreams. Because I feel like about three decades of my life has been wasted. I want to take a second here to give you my first impressions of Hafsa. She radiates an infectious self-confidence that gives her an oversized presence and... You know what, it makes you feel cooler just for being in the same room. You know, she's just one of those people. After six weeks, Hafsa left the refugee centre and enrolled in the Manako Institute of Technology to study social work. Now, I'm going to paraphrase our conversation a wee bit here, but she was a bit unhappy about this. Before she was relocated to Aotearoa, she'd been working in this particular field for seven years. To have that experience disregarded and to be forced to start from scratch feels to her like a bit of a waste of her time. Not to mention the massive student loan she's had to take on. So much of student loan, I'm now overwhelmed. (laughs) And then when you start working, 30% of your wages go to tax and then student loan and then your rent. Kind of feel like, I'm working really hard, but I don't see any changes, any difference. 
It was during the process of enrolling at MIT that Hafsa came across her first real culture shock. So one day I needed to go to the institute just to do some paperwork, and the first shock is about taking bus. When I asked around the people, nobody could have told me which bus stop do I take the bus from. It was quite a nightmare, and then I, I didn't know about the AT Hop card, the app that I have for the bus, and then I was pretty um, anxious. I didn't want to miss the appointment with the university because I don't want to wait for another semester, and I don't know how to get there. When I put on my Google map, it's sometimes very weird, and if I ask people walking by, well, nobody seems to know where's the bus station for the public transport or train station. That is pretty weird because in Malaysia context, in my country, majority of the people will sort of know, okay, this is the bus stop, this is where you go. And then it is pretty usual for the people to move around through public transport or just by walking. And also because I was sort of new in this country, the first few months, even if the government tell you that you are residents now, you're safe. I carried that fear and trauma in my entire life all along the way. I don't feel safe to go around on my own, walking on the bus for after 10. So I feel that limitation about even if there are times and places that I want to go, I still don't go because I don't feel safe and I don't drive. And I felt like, oh, if I had a car, if I knew how to drive, I would have come, but I can't. And I can't keep asking people, can you drop me off? Can you pick me up? And all the time, people are busy with their life. Yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, driving and owning a car in New Zealand feels like a pretty common everyday thing for many of us, especially because our public transport's pretty shit. But in large parts of the world, that's not the case, either because they have to catch public transport because they lack the financial means or they actually live in a city with good public transport or they come from a culture that makes it difficult to learn to drive. And that's particularly true for women. So Hafsa filed away learning to drive in the back of her brain and got on with navigating the nightmare that is the Auckland public transport system. That is, until May 2019. It started raining in May and then I had no idea, although New Zealand doesn't have particular rainy season, rain can come any time. The rain also comes with wind. <laughs> so in Malaysia and in my country, when it's raining, you just need an umbrella and a raincoat. It will definitely protect you. So here, if I bring an umbrella, umbrella just sort of fly. And <laughs> if you don't have <laughs> proper clothes and you're just sort of wet and sitting in your classroom with your wet socks and in shoes for another two years listening to your lectures is very uncomfortable. Yeah, frustrating. And I was like, I need to drive if I have to come to school like every single day or many days of the week in another three, four years. Yeah. I got the wet sock once. It was actually quite bad. It was almost life-threatening. I was on uh, an exchange. I was living in Germany. Uh, it was the middle of winter. Oh, no. And it was my first. I was going to secondary school there. And it was my first day of school. And I wore Chuck Taylors. <gasps> and a fatal mistake. Yeah, walked through the snow. They got soaking wet. My mm. my feet got soaking wet. And I was too <laughs> ashamed. I didn't have enough German to say anything about it. <laughs> oh. And my feet were freezing cold. And I had to take everything off and put my feet on the radiator. It's <laughs> mm. my story. Toes. So I understand about the wet sock. Yeah. After this experience, Hafsa was referred to Open Road. They're an organisation that teaches former refugees to drive. It's a really important skill, which for the most part helps them settle and better access New Zealand society. Hafsa graduated from the programme with a restricted licence in December 2020 and plans to upgrade to her full licence in February. No more getting wet waiting for ghost buses that don't turn up or being unable to go out after dark. But for her, it runs even deeper than that. 
I think it also gives you a sense of um, confidence that you now have no power and no ability and potential to do the sort of things that you want to do, whether it's be your uh, career and your education and socializing your life, which is very important for any sort of migrants or even for refugees, because integrating in a new country, you being able to move is very essential. Um, as I've mentioned, whether to access education, your livelihood, to socialize, to connect with the people. So it's very important. And now that I can drive and I can move around, it just feels so much freedom and confidence. Yeah. Now, at this point in the interview, we usually ask something like, is there anything else you'd like to add on the topic? Normally people are kind of like, eh, no, no, I think we've covered everything. But Hafsa had one more gem to drop about Kiwi culture. The usual thing that people might do, like inviting somebody over to your place and the things that you are supposed to do do and don'ts is very different. So when I first came here, I didn't know that I am supposed to bring my own drink <laughs> when I go to a dinner. And I am supposed to bring, uh, it's good to bring a plate. And we don't do that in my country context. So when somebody hosts you, they host you fully and they feed you everything. And then they even give you for takeaway after you eat. So when I went to this another dinner, it's kind of my acquaintance friend, not my close friend. Somebody had a nice whiskey and wine. And then, I, you know, in our country, okay, have a drink. And then we just share everything we have. So I kept drinking and eating. Then at some point I felt that very weird, unhappy expression on the face. I, I was like, okay, I'm going to ask my friend the next day, what is it about? And then the next couple of days, I asked my friend, she said, um, you are supposed to bring your own drinks. And when people drink, uh, bring their own drinks, if it's a good drink, they might also bring it back home. I'm like, oh, really? Um, even if we bring, we never bring it back home. It's a gift for the host. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll remember that. And next time I'll, I'll bring something and I'll bring my own drinks and I'll try not to invade other people's drink <laughs> without their consent. I would be ropeable if some rando at a party drank all my whiskey. Yeah, fair call. So, John, so far we've heard from Vlad, Hafsa, Mapara and Hassan. But before we get to the end of this episode, we've got one more story to share. It comes from a member of our fifth largest migrant community, South Africa. So when we were moving to New Zealand, I remember before we left saying goodbye to all of our family and friends. They came to the airport to say bye. And I said, Mum, is it true that New Zealand's just full of sheep? And she was like, what? And I said that to you. And I said, my friends at school said to me that in New Zealand, they've just got sheep everywhere because <laughs> in a lot of other countries, I don't think they realise how much civilization we have in New Zealand, like how massive and spread out and how evolved and modern New Zealand actually is. But back then, it was like the other side of the earth, practically nearly the Antarctica. So I remember saying to mum, oh, is, is it's is it just full of sheep. And she's like, no, there's kiwi birds. <laughs> and I was like, oh, is there only sheep and kiwi birds? And she's like, no, 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 there's, there's also other birds. But it really shocked me when we got here that there is minimal animals, minimal things that can kill you, which I suppose is a good thing, like there's no snakes. This is Catherine Laverock. Her parents decided to move their family to Aotearoa after visiting for their honeymoon. Oh. When they first arrived in the country, her family moved around a fair bit before her parents bought a farm and settled in Wanaka, whilst Kat, now an adult, lives in South Auckland. 
we realized pretty quick how good we had it in South Africa. For, for instance, I'll just give you one example. Like the exchange rate is huge. So your money just goes so much further in South Africa. So coming to New Zealand, you've got to think of stripping everything that you own divided by 10. One of the big culture shocks for Kat and her family was our differing attitudes to domestic staff. Living in South Africa, we have um, people that help us. You could call them a maid, a nanny. They are part of our family, so they live with us and pretty much do a lot of stuff regarding the house chores. We had a um, nanny, well, I would, I would call Abigail. She was like a housekeeper. She was definitely part of the family. It was very hard leaving her when we moved to New Zealand because she was a huge help for mum around the house. We also had a gardener, Philip, who did most of the gardening. But mind you, Abigail, she wouldn't just do everything. She would get us to like pick up our toys, help her in the kitchen. She didn't do everything for us, but she definitely did a lot for mum. When Kat and her family moved here, they obviously couldn't fit Abigail and Philip in their carry-on luggage. That was a big lifestyle adjustment. Oh, it was just huge. We, we moved to a, a whole new place, a whole new house. Obviously not so much family and friend support. <laughs> Dad didn't even know how to use a dishwasher. He, he, he's only just started, like 18 years later now, he like helps mum around the house. But I have to say she was really missed, really, really missed. It might seem like they had way more access to help and resources in South Africa, but it's not quite that simple. Look, I have to be honest with you. South Africa, we don't have benefits. We don't have government support. We don't have that sort of stuff. It's quite corrupt. And so I feel as though in South Africa, it's a lot easier and a lot cruisier and your money goes a lot further. And you have obviously the resources of having people to help you and become part of your family to make life a lot more easy. But in New Zealand, we get a lot more government support, you know, like um, healthcare, you've got now KiwiSaver. So, so Kat and her family have been here 18 years or so. Does she feel more like a New Zealander now or is she still South African? I think my heart is definitely still very South African it's always going to be engraved in me and there's a part of me that just whenever I go back to South Africa it warms my soul I love the smells I love the beaches I love the people everything about it just sings to my heart but New Zealand has been my home longer than South Africa has been my home and what about when it comes to our shared national sport rugby ruggers well I actually had this conversation with my partner the other day if you had You know, Springboks versus All Blacks, I would probably go for All Blacks. But a part of me would be hoping that Springboks would still, like, not be beaten by too much. (laughs) You know, it'd still be a close game. So what do you think, Soph? What have you taken as the migrant experience here in New Zealand? That everything is bloody expensive. Yeah, I think that so many of the experiences have come back to kind of cost of living issues and actually have centered around the supermarkets and you know we've done a previous episode on the supermarkets where we really dove into all the issues that are going on in that sector at Dust the moment but you know this is kind of like 
doing research after the event and realising that what you were talking about was actually bang on point because mm. all of these new New Zealanders are pointing out to us that something's not quite right. And this, you know, this episode isn't about um, the supermarket industry. It's so interesting to see that it figures so centrally in everyone's observations about New Zealand. Yeah, and I think it's sort of the opposite for us, right? We go overseas and we go, oh, vegetables are so cheap. And then they come here and go, why on earth is a zucchini $24? Mm. This was episode 10 of Consume This. Thanks for joining us on our podcast journey. We're taking a bit of a Christmas break, but we'll be back in the new year with more episodes. Many thanks to Vladimir Zid... Oh, damn it. My name is Vladimir Stravkovich. Mapara and Hassan. Hafsa Tamisudin and Catherine Laverock for sharing their stories with us. Our thanks also go to Francis Collins, Mark Rands at the Royal Society and Stephanie O'Brien at Open Road. Open Road, the organisation that taught Hafsa to drive, rely on volunteers to mentor their students. If you've got an hour a week to spare, a full driver's licence and you can pass a police check, you could be eligible to sign up and help a recent refugee on their resettlement journey. Check out their website link in the show notes for all the info. Consume This is brought to you by Consumer NZ. We're a not-for-profit organisation supported by our members. For more information about the benefits of membership, check out our website. That link's also in the show notes. This episode was produced by Tom Rees-Smith and hosted by us, John and Sophie. Kakite. See ya. Hello, I'm Abby Darman and I work in the campaigns team at Consumer New Zealand. I want to tell you about some of the exciting work we're doing here at Consumer New Zealand. Right now, literally, as we speak, we're working really hard to keep big businesses and our lawmakers in check. So we're currently engaged in taking on unfair retirement village contracts, misleading supermarket pricing and dodgy green claims. To keep up this good work, we need to raise $50,000 before the 24th of September. So please, if you can, help us to help others by heading to consumer.org.nz forward slash donate. Thanks so much.